Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Probably a lot of you know this, but uh, we, have, we have two deacons here at the church, elders really, because they're apt to teach, who give me quite a bit of abuse about how long it takes me to get through a book of the Bible. Well, let me tell you and them, I'm about to give them loads of ammunition because we're about to start. Now, I'm not going to name those two men, of course. I wouldn't say Greg Hayes and Jim Roberts for anything. But anyway, let me say that preaching is a formidable task in itself. And preaching through the book of Romans is really a formidable task. One of the great expositors of the 20th century was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London, England for many years. He preached a series of sermons through the book of Romans that comprised 14 hardback volumes when the sermons were published. 375 sermons. And he only got through the 14th chapter. A more contemporary preacher, one that you might know, if you don't, you should, Dr. John Piper preached 225 sermons on the book of Romans. Dr. John MacArthur, uh, whose series in the book of Romans comprised four uh, or two large volumes, 60 chapters. Uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite authors, preached over 240 sermons on Romans. I, I could go on, but I think you get the idea. Uh, now, I don't think I'm going to do 375 sermons on Romans. I'm not guaranteeing it, you understand. But I don't think that I'm going to. But neither do I intend to just uh, breeze through it. I have preached through Romans before, but it's been 25 years since I preached through the book of Romans. And I wanted to do it one more time before the Lord takes me home. Now, I told, uh, I told Greg and Jim and Rick, too, this morning about taking a long time to go through Romans is think of it this way. The longer it takes me to get through Romans the longer it'll be before you have to serve on a pulpit committee. So there, there, there's a, a method to this madness on both sides, you, you see. Uh, Romans has been powerfully used by God in the history of the church, and sometimes in remarkable ways. In 8386, there was a professor of rhetoric in Milan, Italy, a man from North Africa by the name of Aurelius Augustinius, who uh, belonged to a cult known as Manichaeism, uh, who was living a very uh, immoral, profligate lifestyle, uh, whose mother was a believer and prayed fervently for him. But uh, Augustine uh, was under deep conviction and uh, was miserable. And once, one day while in a, uh, in a friend's garden, he heard some young children singing a song. And the words of the song were, 
toleleg, toleleg, which means take up and read. He had never heard that song before, but he picked up a scroll of the Bible that he had had and opened it, and his eyes fell upon Romans chapter 13, verse 13, that says, let us behave properly as in the days, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife, in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Augustine later wrote, Instantly, at the end of that sentence, a clear light flooded my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Augustine was saved from his life of sexual immorality and became the most influential man in the history of the church from the time of Christ until the Reformation. Greatly, He greatly influenced the magisterial reformers in the 16th century. Uh, unlike Augustine, Martin Luther was a man who was not living in promiscuity or immorality. He was a, uh, a monk, uh, very, very scrupulous, uh, fasting and praying, uh, and severely treated his body and aesthetic in order that he might uh, find peace with God. But he could not find peace with God. He felt that his sins condemned him. And the more that uh, he prayed, the more that he fasted, the more that he uh, abused himself uh, by various flagellations and things, the more miserable he became. And the one verse that made him more miserable than others was in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it talks about the righteousness of God. And it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Instead of loving God like he knew he should, Luther found himself hating God because he could not live up to the standard he knew the Bible clearly taught. And the standard, of course, is righteousness. The law of God requires us to be absolutely, perfectly righteous. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Luther, much more honest than most of his contemporaries, knew that wasn't true. He knew that his life was filled with sinful thoughts and sinful deeds and actions. Uh, you, you read a biography of Luther and you find that his confessors, those that he would go to confess to, dreaded seeing Luther come because it wasn't going to be a couple of minutes of I did this and this. Luther would go on for hours and hours about his sin. And as Luther wrestled with the text of Romans 1.17, God finally opened his eyes to see that the righteousness from God is a righteousness that he freely imputes to those who believe in Jesus Christ. To those who believe the gospel, God imputes this perfect righteousness. Luther wrote then that he felt reborn, as, he, as if he said, 
I had entered into paradise. Scripture took on a new meaning. And the concept of God's righteousness, rather than filling him with hate, now, he said, became inexpressibly sweet. And his love for God grew more and more every day. Martin Luther called Romans the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. Two hundred years later, an Englishman by the name of John Wesley had formed a holy club at Oxford. And like Luther, Wesley strived to please God. And yet, he had no peace. He served for a time as a missionary in the New World in Georgia. He said he was a miserable failure. And then on the night of May 24, 1738, in great agitation of spirit and soul, Wesley went to a meeting at Aldersgate Street in London, where someone stood up and read from the preface of Luther's commentary to the book of Romans. Later, Wesley wrote in his journal, at about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I indeed did trust Christ, and Christ alone, for my salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and that he had saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley's conversion sparked the great 18th century revival that changed the history of England and of America. Romans also profoundly affected the life of the church father Christostom, he had the book read to him twice a week, every week. God used it in the conversion of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. The English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that Romans is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. So God has greatly used the book of Romans at key times and key moments of the church. One scholar has said that every great spiritual revival that the church has ever experienced can be connected directly to a deep understanding of the book of Romans. The theme of Romans uh, is the righteousness of God, the offer of the righteousness of God to men who find themselves stripped by the law of their own righteousness. It is the righteousness of God uh, in, in various manifestations that will be the theme throughout the book of Romans. Uh, he'll start by saying you don't have it. The first two chapters are all about sinful man. He condemns the pagan Gentiles. He condemns religious Jews. He condemns religious people in particular. He will say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. Then he will say that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And in chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, he will talk about the implications of the righteousness of God that is imputed to believers. Uh, in a nutshell, the theme of Romans 
is the gospel. The good news that God declares sinners to be righteous when they trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf. It is about imputed righteousness, justification, Romans 3, 4, and 5. It is about imparted righteousness, sanctification, Romans 6, 7, and 8. At the end of chapter 8, 9, and 10, he'll talk about righteousness as it pertains to the orders of salvation, the ordo salutis, and who does what in salvation. Uh, and then practically, uh, in verses, uh, in chapter 12 through 16, how that is to be worked out. Now one thing that the book of Romans, if properly understood, will absolutely do is it will strip you of all boasting. You will not be able to boast about coming to know God, for you will understand that first God had to come to know you. The book of Romans will teach unequivocally that salvation is of the Lord, that salvation begins, continues, and ends with God, that it is God who begins this work in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, and we'll grapple with all of these things as we go through the book. Romans is one of the rare New Testament books that liberals have not challenged its authorship. Everyone is pretty much universally agreed that Paul wrote the book of Romans, although he did use uh, a secretary by the name of Tertius. He wrote it from Corinth, we find in Acts chapter 20, probably between A.D. 56 and 58, uh, just as he was about to go to Jerusalem to take the offering that he had collected for the Gentile churches, or he collected from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Acacia. Uh, Phoebe, who is said to be a deaconess, and we'll talk about that when we get there, carried the letter uh, from a port city near Corinth to Rome. And after his ministry in Jerusalem, Paul hoped to pass through Rome and briefly minister there. Uh, and then he wanted to go on to do missionary work in Spain. We don't know how the church in Rome began. Contrary to Roman Catholic tradition, it almost certainly did not begin uh, with Simon Peter, or at least not with him being there. Uh, because if Peter had been there, certainly Paul would have included him in that long list of names in chapter 16 of people that he sends greetings to. He would not have failed to uh, list Peter. Probably the church began when some Jews who were present on the day of Pentecost carried the gospel back to Rome. Uh, and the church began there. By the time Paul wrote this letter, there were Jews in the church, but it was predominantly Gentile. And we know that from various places, chapter 1, chapter 11, chapter 17, chapter 15. And while it is obvious that this letter is a theological masterpiece, the underlying question that we should have is why? Why did he write 
these truths to this church in this book. And the bottom line is no one knows for sure. <laughs> one reason Paul wrote was to prepare for his intended visit there on his way to Spain. He wanted to secure a western base for that missionary venture. Perhaps also he anticipated, at least in some of the writings, he anticipated that the Judaizers who plagued him at every step would try to inflict their errors on the Roman church. And to head off that possibility and to defend the gospel of grace, he uh, wrote the book. For this is the gospel that Paul was preaching everywhere that he went. And he felt it necessary to expand on what he had written to the Galatians, much longer treatise uh, in Romans than in to the churches of Galatia. And I think probably he wanted to resolve any conflict between Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. Uh, because you have passages that deal with various uh, food and Sabbath laws. Thomas, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary, uh, says of Paul's purposes, from the inception of the letter, Paul wants to persuade the Romans that his gospel is orthodox and worth supporting. His goal is to unify the Roman church and rally them around his gospel so that they will help him bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to Spain. Uh, we're going to look uh, at verse 1 this morning. Now someone said, will we finish it? Well, I, I don't know. We'll try. But again, let me tell you this. That responsive reading you have in your bulletin will be good for some time. Uh, we see, first of all here, Paul the man. The most common formula for letters in that time began by identifying the author, naming the recipients, and then a word of greeting. And Romans, along with all New Testament letters, except for the book of Hebrews and 1 John, follows that formula. Uh, there's a lot of autobiography in the book of Romans that is not sometimes uh, readily discernible. Uh, the late great New Testament scholar F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says that Romans is in some ways a biography of the man or an autobiography of the man who was justified by faith alone. Now, we all know Paul's story. I don't think I have to mention it. All of you know the story of Paul who was a bitter persecutor of the church and got letters from the uh, temple authorities to go to Damascus uh, he wanted to persecute, kill Christians, and he struck down on the road to Damascus, and he's converted, and becomes becomes the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. Um, and I think Paul is the greatest Christian in the history of the church. Now, sometimes I'll say that, and people say, what about Jesus? Jesus was not a Christian. He's the Christ. He is God come in human flesh. He did not need to be converted, contrary to what uh, 
heretics like Kenneth Copeland claim that Jesus needed to be born again. No, he did not. He was a perfect man. He did not sin. If he had needed to be born again, he couldn't be our Savior. So I think that the Apostle Paul is the greatest Christian who ever lived. And God commanded this zealot to take his gospel primarily to the Gentile world, which is really ironic because Paul, being a devout Pharisee, hated the Gentiles more than anyone else. And he became the missionary to the Gentiles. Uh, I, I doubt that any of us have had that kind of dramatic conversion. But we need to ask ourselves, have we truly been converted? Have we experienced the grace of God that this man did? Do we know the truth of the resurrection, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Paul knew it? The second thing to notice here is Paul's master. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. That's interesting because in that day, the Pharisees were very, very uh, ostentatious people. Jesus talks about them like to being called, be called rabbi in the marketplace. We have men today that that is the case. They want to... They want to emphasize that they are doctor, you know, I'm, I'm doctor winter, fall, summer, spring, so that you can, you know, immediately uh, bow down and do whatever needs to be done. Paul identifies himself, though Paul was a learned theologian, he identifies himself as a servant. That word means a slave. A slave. The slave owes his master exclusive and absolute obedience. His work earned him neither profit nor thanks. He was only doing what was required of him as a bond slave. Uh, Jesus Christ bought Paul with his own blood. And so Paul was no longer his own. He belonged exclusively to Christ to do his will. For Paul, Christ was the center of his life. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of us really believe that in the 21st century? That to live is Christ, to do his will, exclusively his will. And that to die is gain. Paul believed that. Note how many times he refers to Christ in the opening verses. Verse 1, Christ Jesus. Verse 3, his son. Verse 4, the son of God. Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 6, Jesus Christ. Verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus your exclusive master because he bought you with his own blood. Do I view my daily life as not my own, but belonging to him, to serve him as he commands? And am I seeking to obey him in all things, even in the area of my thought life? 
have, has all of that come under the lordship of Christ. Now, Paul's mandate, he's called to be an apostle. Paul didn't take an aptitude test that indicated that an apostle would be a great career track for him. He didn't take one of those little personality tests that are so popular right now. He was called to be an apostle. God knocked him to the ground on the Damascus Road, blinded him, and said, get up, Paul, do what I tell you to do. An apostle means one who is sent out, one who is sent forth. Uh, And in the sense that Paul was an apostle, there are no more apostles. Um, Sometimes I turn on the television and, and say, oh, Here's, here's Apostle, you know, uh, Cosgrove Gumper. He's an apostle. No, he ain't. Has he seen the resurrected Christ? Was he directly commissioned by Christ? No. The apost- it's important to understand that the office of the apostle ceased after Paul. There are, there are really no more apostles because The apostles had the authority and were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Holy Scripture. There's no more Scripture being written because there are no more apostles. That is very important also in understanding spiritual gifts. The miraculous sign gifts, I personally believe they ceased with the apostles because they were given to authenticate the office of the apostle and the Holy Scripture. It carried a special authority to lay the foundation of the church. You put the two words together here, called an apostle, and that emphasized the authority that Paul received from God that is given to us in the New Testament epistles. Any, any reading of this book that ignores that claim uh, is going to have problems. Uh, we're not apostles, but our hearts are to be in submission to Jesus Christ. Uh, and we find in the Bible, it's sometimes difficult to submit to the truth. We don't, we don't like to believe. We, we like to run around thinking, oh, everything in the Bible, uh, I believe it. That's because you don't know everything that's there. As I've said so many times through the years, Baptists believe the whole Bible because they don't know what's in it. And then when you tell them what's in it, oh, I don't know if I believe that. One of the things that we're going to wrestle with in the book of Romans is the doctrine of election, of predestination. Yea, verily, and amen, even of double predestination. That's a difficult, difficult, complex thing. When I began wrestling with the truth over 45 years ago, as a sophomore in college, I thought, man, this is not what Baptists believe. You know, that was my argument, really. I would argue with a friend of mine, and I would say to him, you know, that's not what Baptists believe. And finally one day he looked at me and he said, well, I'll tell you what, dummy, that's what the Bible says. I thought, okay, now we're both in trouble. 
You, you have to take what the Bible says, whether it agrees with what you think it ought to say or not. And it's very clear what the Bible says. This is not just Paul's word. It's God's word. And I must submit to that word. Then Paul's mission. He's set apart for the gospel of God. It's interesting because the word set apart in Greek uh, is, a, is related to the word Pharisee. The Pharisees proudly viewed themselves as set apart from the common Jews and especially separate from Gentile dogs. And again, ironically, Paul is sent to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles and it's going to cause him a lot of trouble. I mean, you read through the New Testament, you find that because of his mission to the Gentiles, Paul is ostracized, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's left for dead. Assassination attempts are made on his life, but he never stops. This is what God called him to do, called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. You may not be called into a full-time ministry of preaching the gospel, but all of us are called to proclaim the gospel to others. All of us are commissioned to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Paul's message, the gospel of God. As I understand that, that means the gospel that comes from God, the one that he devised and laid out and planned from before the foundation of the world. You've heard me say this numerous times if you've been here very long, but it is the truth. There are a lot of men in this world that can preach the gospel better than I can, but they can't preach a better gospel because there is not a better gospel. There is the gospel of God, the gospel that comes from God, and the gospel is all about God. He is both its object, and its source. The gospel is about how we as sinners can be rightly re related to a holy God through the sacrifice of his son. It's about how God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. John Piper said, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. He is the treasure that we receive. He is the good news that Christ died for our sins. The thought of God dominates this letter. The word God occurs 153 times in the book of Romans. On average, once about every 46 words. That is more than any other New Testament writing. Not only does God occur in Romans more frequently than in any other book, it occurs more often than any other theme in any other book of the New Testament. Uh, apart from a few prepositions, pronouns, and the like, no word used in Romans is used anything like the frequency of the words of God. Dr. Leon Morris said, God is the most important word in this letter. He also points out that Paul uses gospel more than any other letter in the book of Romans. 
The word gospel appears 76 times in the New Testament. 60 of those occurrences come in the book of Romans, more than any other. The gospel is the ultimate good news that although we are sinners, God has made a way that we may be reconciled to him through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. It cost him separation from the Father. He endured the wrath of God, but it's free to us. To us, it comes without cost. So the question to ask ourselves here is, are we growing in our knowledge of God more deeply each day? Is our understanding of God shaped more by popular culture or the Bible? Because many people have an idea of God today. Some of them religious people. But he is not the God of the Bible revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. He's a God that they have made up out of their own imagination. A lot, of, a lot of people counsel not going to the book of Romans because of the deep theological truths that are here. I've never understood that, to be honest with you. I understand that it's a difficult book. I understand that you've got to wrestle with the text. I understand that you've got to think. But here's the deal. Is the book of Romans one of the most significant theological treatises ever penned? Yes. But it was written to a church. He didn't write this to a seminary. He, he didn't write it to the, the Evangelical Theological Society. He didn't write it to a, a group of doctors of theology and a bunch of high up muckety mucks. He wrote it to a church that was mostly comprised of working men and slaves. And they got it. They understood it. And there's no reason that you can't get it. And that you cannot understand it. The book of Romans says that we need to be stripped of our own self-righteousness and flee to Christ and trust his sacrifice for our righteousness. And then being justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, grow in our relationship with God and man. We need to grow and embrace and embody the truth that is the gospel. Just a moment.